0: All right, praise the Lord. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're a part of the children's ministry, you're excused. All right. Well, I'm going to be doing announcements today. If you're here for the first time on this Memorial Weekend, thank you so much for making time. I know you could have been traveling. Have vacationing, doing many things, but thank you for coming to worship with us. If you're new uh, here in person, please go and uh, get a Connect card. If you haven't been handed one already, fill that out, drop it off in the black box in the back. It's a very simple way for us to stay connected, and you're, you're going to hear uh, more about things going on. If you're joining us online, uh, please go to our website. Uh, if you go to the top on the homepage, you'll see New Here. Click on that, you'll see an eConnect card, and then fill that out. Same thing, uh, it's a simple way for us to stay connected. Um, Just a few announcements, but um, the big one is Malawi Missions Fundraiser, but we're going to be going to Malawi in about a month. I can't believe how quickly it's coming up, Uh, but we have about a team of seven people, and you're going to be meeting them uh, very soon. We're going to invite them up, not today, uh, but in a week or two to pray for them and to uh, send them off, Um, and then they're also going to be sharing more about um, a fundraiser that we're going to be doing but if you want to support the team, uh, we have a fundraiser. We're going to actually have uh, a couple, but we have one coming up tomorrow. So if you like hamburgers and eating, and at the same time supporting missions, and this is for you. But come out to Habit, where we're going to be meeting uh, tomorrow. Uh, there's a window of time between 4 to 8 p.m. Just go to the Habit Burger at Central Plaza. Take this flyer. Um, You're not going to get one there. You have to take one to the place. But then show them this when you purchase your meal. They're going to scan it, and then 20% of whatever you bought will go to our missions. Amen? So praise God for Habit Burger. But please go there, buy a lot of food, and then donate to the church. Okay, amen, or to the missions team. So don't forget this flyer. Please take it. And if you haven't gotten a flyer yet, you can also get an e-flyer. Just email me. Talk to one of our leaders. You should have gone one already if you're on our email list. Okay, so that's tomorrow between 4 to 8 p.m. at Habit. Okay, another announcement is if you want to give directly to Malawi Missions, uh, you don't need to buy hamburgers or do anything. Uh, but another way is to just give directly to the Missions team by uh, going to our website. You can just go to the, the Give page. Along the top of our homepage, you'll see Give. Click on that. Uh, there's a very simple way. You could just give a one-time donation um, through PayPal. And under special instructions, just write Malawi Missions. And then we will receive that, and we'll know exactly where to put those funds. All of it will go to the Malawi Missions. So you can do that, or you can just write a check and send it to our office over here at 4062 Brockton Avenue. But just write a check, um, make it out to the Promised Church, and then on the memo, write Malawi Missions. So if you write Malawi Missions, again, we'll know exactly where to put that. All of it will go to the Missions. Okay, Uh, another announcement is prayer gatherings. Uh, We have prayer every Wednesday online. Please join us. All you have to do is like click a mouse, right? And then you're going to be right there. We meet on Zoom to pray together. We pray for everything, ourselves, our families, our church, our community, the nation, uh, all around the world, issues that are going on. We pray for everything. But please come out. Uh, We need prayer. How does the saying go? Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. So please come out. And join us in prayer. Every Wednesday is at 7. And then finally, uh, this past Friday, we had an outreach to the shelters. We've been doing this for many years. But guest chef, thank you for everyone who participated. It was a blessed time. We served about 70 uh, residents who are at the shelter. And we had a wonderful lasagna dinner. dinner. So praise God. We'll have another one coming up in about a few months. Keep your eyes open for that. Okay. With that, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to be starting a whole new series. Praise God. All right, Revelation chapter 1, 1 through 20. You know, um, as you open up your Bibles to that passage, I actually wanted to um, say something briefly and then say a prayer. And, um, yeah, sometimes I kind of debate whether to really highlight things that are happening in our nation, but I really feel we need to pray for this one. And uh, many of you guys know, but... There was a terrible shooting in Texas this past week, Uh, but 19 elementary school-aged kids lost their lives. Uh, I've been covering or watching the stories um, that are coming out, along with two teachers. And this is the third shooting in a series of shootings in just a few weeks. And so there's something really terrible happening in our nation. Um, But on May 14th, there was a shooting in Buffalo, New York, Ten people lost their lives at a grocery store. Most most of them were African-American. The very next day, a Taiwanese church right here in Orange County, uh, they had a shooter come into their church meeting right after their service. They were fellowshipping, eating, just worshipping together, and somebody came in and started shooting people. And then just a week after that, this terrible shooting at the elementary school. And in case you're wondering, oh, this is just really random, this year alone, there have been over 200 mass shootings in our country. And a mass shooting by the government is defined by three or more victims. Over 200 in just this year. So I know there's a lot of talk about you know, reforms and mental health and all of that, and I'm open to all of that, but we know that there's a much deeper problem. Right? There's something much deeper going on. So I just wanted to say a prayer. Um, so just join me in prayer, and then we're going to get into our word. But Lord, you are holy and you are on the throne. And Lord God, um, yeah, we're just really blessed to be able to come and freely and openly worship you. But along with those freedoms, Lord God, uh, there have been terrible tragedies. People taking advantage of people's freedoms and taking people's lives And these aren't just random occurrences. Oh, people got unlucky. That's what I hear a lot. Oh, they were just unlucky. Wrong place at the wrong time. But Lord God, but this is much more than that. And whatever problems that this nation is facing, it goes all the way down to the roots. As people have fundamentally left you, they have fundamentally left the restraints that you have put in place for society to function. We're in the very midst of an upheaval. People are casting off restraints. And this is some of the fruit of that, the terrible fruit. And so, Lord God, we just want to bring the situation before you, Lord, and there are so many people grieving. Their lives are completely devastated. And there are people, even right now, this is not a normal Sunday for them. This is not a normal week for them, But their lives have been completely ripped apart. And so we pray for them. We pray that many of them, if not all of them, will turn to you, God, that they will find the solution and the peace only in you, God. Ultimately, it's only in you. So Lord God, please. And I pray, Father God, that you will bring healing, that you will begin to mend all the things that are ripped apart, Father God. Lord, I can't even imagine the most recent shooting of of families losing their little children god just third fourth graders just innocent babies so lord god please lord god have mercy and lord god have mercy upon our nation god truly please and protect this church as well lord god that thought has crossed my mind i mean is it really just luck but lord god please protect us as well protect all of the churches in this nation. Father, please bring a revival, Lord. I don't see any other answer other than a revival. People need to come back to you. So Lord God, we trust you. We thank you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's look at Revelation 1, 1 through 20. All right, so good to look at God's word. Okay, if you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on the screen at home. But Revelation 1, 1 through 20. Okay, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servants, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near, amen, the time of Jesus' coming is near, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." Let's pray. Father God, you are the Lord over the church. You are the Lord over this church, Lord God. And we know that, Lord, you are constantly and always speaking to your church. And I pray that you would speak now. You have a message for your church. And I pray that you would, Father, make it clear that you would open our hearts. Lord God, we submit ourselves to you. You are the Lord. We worship you. Lord God, if we're here for any other reason than to hear from you and to be with you and worship you, then, Lord God, take that away, whatever distractions, and let his Father focus fully now on you, the risen, glorified Christ. You are the head of this church. You are the great I am. And you speak. So, Lord God, please, Lord God, speak through my unworthy mouth. Like Isaiah, Lord, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. But, Father, you still have mercy. So, please speak, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, like I said earlier, I'm excited to start a whole new series today. So praise God, we're finally through spiritual gifts, but we're not done. You're going to be hearing more about spiritual gifts. But in the meantime, we're going to be looking at the first three chapters of Revelation. So maybe one day I'm going to preach through the whole book. But for this series, we're just looking at chapters 1, 2, and 3. And the series is called The Seven Letters to the Church. And so we're going to literally look at the seven letters that Jesus gave to the church And even though this is a new series, we're going to be continuing our focus on the theme this year, which is what? Be the church, right? So we're going to be continuing to look at being the church, except now we're kind of shifting our focus onto a unique perspective, which is the revelation of John the Apostle. So we're not coming from Paul's letters or just something that maybe I read in a Christian book, but we're looking at this unique perspective of revelation. But why revelation? Maybe some of you guys have never heard a sermon series through revelation. It's actually kind of rare to study revelation in the church these days. But why revelation? Well, revelation was a message from God to his church during troubled times. Okay, I want to make that clear. This was not during hunky-dory happy times, but this was during troubled times. It was written by a persecuted pastor To a group of struggling churches at a time when Christianity was being marginalized, hated, and attacked. And if that sounds familiar, I'm going to say a little bit more about that later. But the church was being marginalized, hated, and attacked. So that was the situation of the early church at the very end of the first century. So this letter was written around 90 AD. And towards the end of that first century, the Roman Empire was really cracking down on the church. And in this context, God appeared to John in a vision and told him in a very loud voice and so you see this in chapter 1 verse 11. Write what you see in a book. Very direct command. Write down what what you're going to see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so these seven churches, they're all in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And so in a little bit, I'm going to put up a map, or at least A.V. team will, and then you're going to see where the churches are. They kind of circle around Asia Minor. It was the postal route along this one route in Asia Minor. But this is, uh, these are the churches that John was commanded to write to. And so John, when he began to see this vision unfold before him, while he was on this island, he began to write it down. And that's why we have this book today. Revelation is here because John obeyed this command. So John didn't write this. It was given by God. John just wrote down what he was told. So John the Apostle is the author. We accept that because John, or I'm sorry, Revelation itself says John is the author. Four times it says that. Three times in chapter 1, once in chapter 22. The early church tradition also said John the Apostle was the author. So all the early church fathers for the first 200 years said John is the author. So there's no reason to question that. We accept it. John the Apostle is the author. And John wrote this letter when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. It says that in verse 9. And Patmos was a very tiny island off the coast of Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea. It was only about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, 30 miles, square miles. That's it. Just a small piece of land in the middle of the sea. And I want to actually put up a map right now so you get a quick visual of what it looks like. There it is. Right there. Right off the... Coast of Asia Minor, and then those are the seven churches right there along the postal route. So John's on that island being commanded by God to write letters to all those churches right there, which he, by the way, was overseeing. He started Ephesus. He was the pastor of that church. And then later on, out of Ephesus, all those other churches got planted. They got started out of Ephesus. So John was the pastor or the bishop overseeing all these churches, but he was exiled. So here he is on the island of Patmos, which is basically a prison colony of Rome. There was nothing special about it. There were about 50 of these prison island colonies. And John the Apostle was sent to Patmos as a criminal. And he would have been an old man when he arrived at that island. He would have been about 90 years old. According to the archaeologist Sir William Ramsey, a typical prisoner on that island would have been flogged before he got sent there or as soon as he got arrived. And then he would have been chained the entire time. He would have been forced to do hard labor under the whip of a taskmaster. And we, he would have had very little food, very little clothing. He would have slept on a bare floor, probably within a cave. But those are the circumstances John lived in. And that would have been tough for a 20-year-old, but imagine enduring that as a 90-year-old. So John was here on this tiny island suffering. But why was John sent there? Okay, what was his crime? Well, his crime was he was committed to preaching and declaring Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, not the Roman emperor is Lord. And for that crime, the Christian church became public enemy number one by the Romans. And this is why at the close of the first century, we see the church struggling. So John was preaching this message, the church was preaching this message, and they became the enemy of Rome. And they were being persecuted. They were seen as troublemakers, disloyal, odd. They were strange to the Romans. I heard that the Romans even accused them of being atheists, which is very bizarre because they didn't worship all the Roman gods. They were accused of being atheists. They were even accused of being cannibals because Jesus talked about eating his blood, drinking his blood. So they were seen as very odd and also as a threat. So the church was living in very troubling times. And even though we shouldn't equate all the troubles we're facing today with the early church because things are different, I don't think it's too hard to see the similarities, right? Even as I talked about how the church was being marginalized, hated, seen as very odd, they were even being attacked, you can kind of see parallels today. But the Christian church today is also increasingly seen as troublemakers, as disloyal to the cultural narrative. We're seen as very odd, even a threat, by the pagan culture. So more and more I've heard this, but Christians are told, hey, you're on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that? But Christians are told that all the time nowadays. And so when people say that, they're referring to the church's stance on things like abortion. I mean, there's a debate going on right now in the Supreme Court on that. But abortion, gay marriage, transgenderism. But you're on the wrong side of history. And these people say that because according to them... A hundred years from now, when people look back on this time, they're going to say, yeah, the church was totally wrong on these issues. Because that's what they're saying. Never mind that God is the God of history. God is the one under control of history. And yet, they say, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. But those are just some of the things that we hear already. But these are some of the hot-button issues. But this antagonism against Christianity, it goes all the way down to the bottom. It really does. It's not just these few issues. But, you know, recently I was talking to a couple at our church, and we were just talking about the culture and the things that we're facing. And we said that, you know what, more than ever before, there seems to be a battle for biblical truth in every area of culture. And I'm not exaggerating. Any field, any area you can think of, there is a battle happening right now for biblical truth. I'm talking about areas like politics, science, technology, higher ed, children's education, social media, entertainment, sexuality, the family, other religions, you name it. Okay, whatever you could think of, some area, some field in our culture today, there is a battle raging for biblical truth. And so if you're just simply living as a Christian, and again, I can't remember a time like this when I was growing up. Okay, you're not even like this extreme. You're not even out there sharing the gospel. You're just a Christian living your life, trying to follow the Bible, be faithful to Christ, you're going to encounter some, some, some form of battle okay, in these areas. And there is even a battle for biblical truth within the church. So it's not just stuff out there, but it's happening even inside the church. You know, I shouldn't have to convince you, but if you've just been aware of what's going on, but for over 20 years now, there's been a rapid decline of the church in America. Okay, if you're not aware of that, then you haven't been paying much attention. But more and more, this is obvious, but the church has become worldly and weak, self-centered. The church is in trouble. But we hear about Christian leaders falling on a regular basis. It's not even a surprise anymore. I remember back when I was in college or younger, it's like, oh my gosh. But now it's just like, oh, okay. It's just so normal. But the most recent example is I heard that the senior pastor of the global Hillsong Church, do you know how big that ministry is? He was called the global pastor. That's how big... You know that when you go from senior pastor to global pastor, okay, you made it big, right? But he was the global pastor of the entire Hillsong movement around the world. Well, he had to step down because of misconduct towards multiple women. But they found out, yeah, this guy, he's not not doing what he should be doing, and they told him he had to step down. So this is happening on a regular basis. False beliefs are also growing. I remember reading a survey by Barna some years ago, but it found that the majority of Christians in America, they don't even believe that Satan and the Holy Spirit exist. And these are Christians. I remember reading this article that came out in 2020, and the title, it just said it all, but New Barna poll: the Christian church is seriously messed up. I said, like, wow, okay, I'm going to read that. But the Christian church is seriously messed up. And this article went into all the false beliefs and the worldliness that is growing within the church. So these things are happening all within the church, but then there are also churches who believe the right things, right? Okay, I would never go to one of those churches that believes false things, but what about churches that believe in the right things? But even for churches that believe in the right things, more and more you are seeing churches that are not emphasizing the right things. You know, more than 50 years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, But he was a pastor in the U.K. ministering to Europe. And Europe, by the way, 50 years ago, is where America is today. And if you want to know where America is going to be in a few decades, look at Europe today. So Europe is always a little bit ahead of America. But he was ministering in Europe 50 years ago, which is very similar to America today. And this is what he said about false teachers. The most dangerous person of all. He was a very, very wise and well-known pastor, influential. So listen to him. The most dangerous person of all is the person who does not emphasize the right things. According to Marlon jones That's who you need to look out for. And he's absolutely right. Because that is the enemy's most effective weapon against the church. I mean, a heretic, an atheist, somebody who's shouting false beliefs. I mean, you see them from a mile away. But who do you not notice? Who do you not see? Who is the most effective tool of the enemy? It's the evangelical pastor who simply doesn't emphasize the right things. Is the Christian who does not emphasize the whole gospel and the whole counsel of God's word. Okay, they only major on certain things. And they neglect other things. And because of that, you just get a completely twisted and skewed view of the Christian life. And so this is happening today within the church. And so things look very bleak for the church. And this is exactly how the church was in John's day. And here's what's so encouraging about the book of Revelation. See, you need to understand why this book was written. Oftentimes when you hear the book of Revelation, you just think of like lions and, you know, weird animals and, you know, angels flying around and the tribulation and maybe, you know, people getting their heads cut off and like bizarre things. But we need to understand why this was written. But the reason why Revelation was written is given right at the beginning of the letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. What does this say? How does this entire book start? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's why this book was written. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that can be translated or understood as the revelation from Jesus Christ or the revelation about Jesus Christ. I think both are true. It's both from him and is about him. And so this is what this book is about. And again, most people, when they hear the book of Revelation, they think immediately about the end times. Oh, it's about the end times. It's a revelation about the end times. And yes, Revelation will give you information about the end times, but that is not the main revelation it's giving. But what is the main revelation? This book is revealing to us who Jesus Christ is. It's about Jesus Christ. After he died and rose again and ascended to glory. See, so we have four books in the, in the Bible of Jesus when he was here on earth as a man, truly man, truly God. But we only have one book here describing him in full glory after he ascended to heaven. It's Revelation. So Revelation is really about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals this. No matter where you come from, okay, what, what your perspective is, how battered you are, how hated you are, how persecuted you fear, feel as a Christian, if you look at this book, what you're going to see is Jesus Christ. And isn't that encouraging? Okay, that, that's what this book is about. This is why God gave this book to his churches at the end of the first century because he knew exactly what they were facing. So this is what this book is showing us. It is about Jesus Christ and it's showing us that Jesus is not distant. Okay, he's not distracted. But instead, what do we see? And this is what we're going to look at today. But what do we see right from the opening of this book? Again, this was sent to battered, weak, compromised, troubled churches. Maybe churches just like churches today. But what do we see about Jesus here? He is standing right in the midst of his church. That's how this book opens. It is a revelation about Jesus Christ, glorious, in heaven, ascended. He is the Lord of the church, and where is he? standing right in the midst of his church. He's right here. And so these churches in Asia Minor that were weak and troubled, okay, they were facing dangers from the outside, facing dangers from the inside. Okay, these churches suddenly got this message from God through John. And this is what God wanted them to see. The risen Jesus is in your midst, right? No matter what you're going through, Jesus is right there. He is right there in the midst. He is with you. So Jesus is always standing in the midst of his church, and he's not just standing there. But again, this is what we're going to look at today. But what is he doing as you read chapter 1? We just read it together. What is he doing? Jesus is working, amen? He's working in the church. He's praying for the church, speaking to the church, guiding the church, protecting the church, disciplining the church, purifying the church, empowering the church. He's always at work. He's ministering to the church. So this is the revelation we get right from the beginning. This is what we see about Jesus Christ. So this is what we need to understand right from the beginning is that there's this very intimate connection between Jesus and the church. Okay, this is what God wanted us to see from the opening of this book. And in fact, even through all the crazy stuff later on, which we're not, we're not going to look at, but with all the tribulations and the plagues that begin to come upon the earth at the end times, you continue to see this intimate connection between Jesus and his church. They're always connected. Okay, they always move as one. So this is the introduction. Okay? This is the opening to this entire book. But we see Jesus in the midst of his church working, ministering to the church. So that was a pretty long intro. But what I want to do today is I want to look at different ways that Jesus is actually working. So then in what way is he ministering? Okay, why is he here in the midst? What is he doing in the church? Well, there are a few different things that we see in this chapter. So first, Jesus is here by his voice. This is the first thing we see. But we see Jesus' voice in the church. Look at verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12. Again, Jesus isn't calling from heaven. He's right here, and we see his voice. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying right what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice. Okay, that's a weird expression. You don't see a voice, but that's what John said. Okay, that voice was so significant, right, substantive. He's like, I got to see this voice. (laughs) You normally hear it, but he's like, I got to see it. So he's like, "I, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands was someone like the Son of God, right? So it's interesting how before John even sees the presence of Jesus, he hears his voice. Okay, that's the first thing Jesus revealed about himself. That's the first thing John encountered. But John encountered the voice of Jesus. Jesus. And right here, this should immediately bring up maybe a different passage, another image of Jesus, which is Jesus as the good shepherd in John 10. But in that chapter, John, or Jesus, said, my sheep hear my voice. John the apostle wrote that down for us. But Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. But now fast forward many decades, and John gets a different now revelation of Jesus' voice. Again, this is a revelation of Jesus, right, this whole book. So now John gets a different revelation of Jesus' It's not the gentle voice of a shepherd, but now he hears the thundering voice of Yahweh, okay, God Almighty in the Old Testament. So John's understanding of Jesus' voice completely changed. Maybe up until this point, he only saw Jesus as, oh yeah, he's my shepherd. He's my good shepherd. Okay, I love when Jesus talks to me. But suddenly, his image of Jesus' voice completely changes. And so in this moment, I believe what happened is the two different pictures of Jesus in John's mind, they came together. But on one hand, there was the picture of Jesus as the good shepherd with the gentle voice calling out to his sheep. Bah, come here. You know, whatever shepherds do, right? It's like, come here, come here. And so there's that voice. I like, I'm glad you like that, Helen. But it's like, come here, come here. So there's that image of Jesus. And then here's this other image of, I know that the Lord has a booming, thundering voice. Every Jew knows that from the Old Testament. Yahweh, his voice, the strips the bark off of trees, it shakes the earth. That's what the Old Testament says in Isaiah. And yet now, in a single moment, those two pictures come together. It's the same person. That meek and mild and that gentle shepherd calling out to his sheep, is the same person as the God of the Old Testament that strips bark off of trees with his voice. It's the same God. But there's a very different voice here. And So you see that? It's a new revelation of Jesus. And here, the voice of the shepherd has now become like a loud trumpet. In the Old Testament, a loud trumpet was usually heard for one thing. It was a call to battle. And later in verse 15, John said Jesus' voice was like something else, the roar of many waters. Have you guys ever been to Niagara Falls? Yeah, I remember going there when I was a little kid. I was in elementary school, and I remember it looked pretty amazing. And yet when we got closer on the U.S. side of the border, you could see it from Canada, and also from the US, we're on the US side, and as we got closer to it along the border, it started getting so loud, so loud. We couldn't get very, very close, but I could imagine if you got very close to the falls, you could no longer hear someone, even if they were shouting to you. That's how loud the waters were. But that's the picture I get. John said, his voice, my gosh, I could imagine him covering his ears. It was like thundering, roaring waters. It was so loud. And so, John, this is the revelation he got. This is the new revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's still our shepherd. Yes, when he calls to us, he's still gentle. But when he speaks through his church, there is a thundering voice that goes throughout the church. Okay, that's what John is saying. Because Jesus is right here in the midst. But what does that mean? some of you guys might be thinking, okay, but I don't hear Jesus' voice like that. Okay, when I come to church, all I hear is you, Roy, shouting. But I don't hear Jesus thundering through the church or through the people's hearts. I I don't hear Jesus in that way. So how is Jesus' voice like a trumpet? How is it like the roar of many waters? Well, the answer to that is right here. This is how. How is Jesus right here in the midst and his voice is here, thundering through the church? Well, it's through the scriptures. What I mean is every time you open up the Bible in church and you read it out loud, and that's why I always like to read it together, and every time somebody teaches it faithfully, out loud, what is happening is Jesus' voice is being heard. It is being thundered throughout the church and throughout people's hearts. And I'm not talking about my voice. I'm not talking about some you know, community group leader. I'm talking about what Jesus is saying in the scriptures. That is being thundered throughout the church. But the problem is that not everyone hears it. because Jesus said repeatedly, you have to have ears to hear. Amen? Even right now, there are some of you, you're sitting here, but you don't hear it. And again, I'm not talking about my voice. All of you hear my voice. I try to make sure. I go turn it up back there. (laughs) You hear my voice, but I'm talking about you don't hear Jesus' voice. You simply don't because you do not have ears to hear. So Jesus repeatedly, while he was here on earth, and even now in Revelation 1, I believe what we're hearing is you must have ears to hear because if you do, it's thundering. His voice is loud and clear. So just because you're faithfully reading the Bible or hearing what is being taught, faithful teaching on the word of God, doesn't mean you hear Jesus' voice. Do you know how many PhDs there are on the Bible? You PhDs from secular universities, many of them are not even Christian. Do you know how many there are? There are a lot. Yeah, okay, I, I couldn't find out how many. <laughs> I was doing some searching. But there are a lot. And these are people who have read the Bible, studied the Bible, far beyond any average Christian. They would put you to shame how much scripture they know, and yet we know they don't hear Jesus' voice. How do we know that? Because they don't even believe in Jesus. They don't even believe that he's the Son of God, that he is the Savior. So even though they know the scriptures, they read it, they study it, they hear teaching on it, they don't have ears to hear, and unfortunately a lot of believers are that as well. So you must have ears to hear. And this is just another way of saying you must have a heart that believes. See, every time we open up the scriptures at church and we read it out loud or you hear a faithful teaching from the scriptures, you need to have a heart that truly is receptive. You're open to the word of God and you will believe it. You will receive it. Here's another way to say it. You need to have an appetite for the word of God. You need to have a desire and an appetite to hear God's word. Brothers and sisters, I'm being serious here because I know where the church is at in America. And I know where our church is even at times. And it is weak. It is in trouble, brothers and sisters. And I think this is one of the key reasons. Please, don't look at programs and buildings and the size of the churches. That means nothing, truly. That truly means nothing. The church is in trouble, brothers and sisters, and it comes down to this. People do not hear Jesus in the word of God. Why? Because they don't have an appetite for the word of God. See, when they come to church, they don't have any desire to hear what God is saying in the word. But rather, and I hear this a lot, people just want to hear something uplifting. Oh, I just want to hear something encouraging because I had a tough week. You know, they come to church going, you know what, I just need some help to be a better person because I got this issue in my life. You know, I kind of get into a lot of conflicts. My friendships aren't really working out. And so this is why people come to church. And again, those things can happen. I think they should happen in church. But the overwhelming desire that believers should have, when they come to church, should be, I want to hear God, amen? I want to hear the thundering voice of Jesus through the word of God. That should be an overwhelming appetite in your heart. That's the person who has ears to hear. So what does that mean, have ears to hear? you got to have that desire, brothers and sisters, when you come to church. You should come here and not to, oh, yeah, I'm going to see some friends, do my Christian thing, and go home. No, I want to hear God speak to me today. I want to hear him speak. Again, not Roy. Okay, please, if it's anything about me, ignore that. But I want to hear God in Scripture speaking to me through His Word. That desire, that expectancy to hear from God, every time we gather, that is having ears to hear. Okay, is that clear? That is having ears to hear. And like I said earlier, the church is facing many challenges today. And the people in the church, they're not up for the challenge. Okay, they're not. Are you up for the challenge? Okay, are you going to be the banner, the soldier for Christ to reverse everything that's happening? Okay, I, don't, I don't feel up for the challenge many times. And the reason why is because we are too weak spiritually. Okay, we're, we're too weak because we don't come and gather to hear and be fed the word of God, that's not our, that's not our appetite. In Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We're not eating. That's why we're weak. We're not up to the challenge, brothers and sisters. You know, when I think about what propelled my spiritual growth, because uh, I've been a Christian for a long time now. I'm getting kind of old, maybe 30 years, walking with God. A lot of things mattered, yeah. The community mattered, Yeah, community mattered a lot. The serving God, getting opportunities? Yeah, that mattered. That helped me to grow. But you know what mattered more than anything else? It's what I'm talking about. It's hearing God speaking to me and coming to know God intimately through the pages of Scripture. Okay, that is what propelled me in my spiritual growth. You know, growing up in church, I had the privilege of having some very entertaining and dynamic speakers as pastors. And I, and I have. You know, I've, you know, very, very interesting pastors growing up. And a lot of them were very entertaining. I like going to church because some of them were so funny. I remember this one pastor uh, in particular when I was growing up. He was kind of a fob, F-O-B. Some of you guys don't know what that means, but it just means fresh off the boat. Okay, so this pastor was fresh off the boat. And because he was a fob, and if you guys ever had a fobby pastor, you know, they get away with things, right? They could say things that normal pastors like me, (laughs) an unfobby pastor, can't get away with. But they could just get away with things. They could say things that normally aren't funny. But they're so funny because they're so fobby. But I remember this pastor that I had. He would say things like, everybody listen, there are three kinds of fish. There's grilled fish, there's fried fish, and there's selfish. And people would just be rolling. I'm like, dude, you are so funny, right? You're just hilarious because you're just so fobby. And you're just such a weird guy, right? And so every time we came to church, it was a good time. We just loved it, right? We would just have such a great time. And ha, 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 ha isn't it so funny today and we'd have you know, good fellowship afterwards and then go home. And so I actually kind of enjoy church. And there's some value to that. There is. You know, humor, there's some value to that. But when I think back to all those years, yeah, there was some value. But did that propel me in my spiritual growth? No, it didn't. It didn't. I can't think of one thing during that season of my life that propelled me, that laid the foundation for me to be growing now and be a pastor over this church. So then what caused me to grow when I began in ministry, when I began my walk with God? What, what caused me, propelled me in my faith? It was just one thing. By God's grace, having this hunger, this appetite for the word of God. It really is. To begin to desire it. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. Again, there's nothing wrong with humor and entertaining. There's nothing wrong with that. But over time, I, I began to get bored by that, honestly. Honestly. I would would begin to go to churches and visit and hear sermons, and a lot of it was just entertaining, good stories, you know, uplifting. And and when it didn't focus on the Word of God, I would just tune out. It was truly just boring to me because I wanted to hear the Word of God. I need to hear from my Lord. Open up this book and teach me something from it. Show me who the Lord is. In fact, I'm not going to go into any details, but recently I decided, along with the leaders of our church, to make a very big decision regarding our church because of that reason. Because I began to go to these conferences and began to hear all these speakers. And after a while, I'm like, I'm not being taught the word of God. And so we made a big decision regarding the church. And you'll hear more about that later. But that's how I felt. It it just becomes lifeless and boring. And there's nothing there to propel me and lift me up in my faith. To draw me closer to my Lord. And so my prayer, my desire is that you guys would have the same appetite, brothers and sisters. Okay, go for the real thing. Okay, who wants to get an imitation gift? I remember my, uh, one of my relatives, my aunt, went to, uh, I think it was either Korea or China, the wonderful land of imitations. Okay, so <laughs> she went there, and then she came back with all this stuff, right? FIFA shoes and, you know, Gu- guccio belts. It wasn't Gucci, it was Guccio and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, what is all this? And within a few days, I remember my belt, my Guccio belt. I had it on, and boom, it just ripped in half. But who wants the imitation, right? You want the real thing. You want what is authentic. Don't don't tell me your opinions and things you've read elsewhere and your funny, insightful stories. Open up this book and teach me something from the word of God. I want to hear the Lord's voice. This is what we're talking about. Jesus is standing in the midst of his church, and the first thing Jesus, or I should say John, saw was the voice of Christ. So think about that. He saw the voice of Christ. That's how powerful his voice was, how substantive. And so we need the voice of God. This is what will cause us to grow. And so we need to understand the word of God. We need to hear God speaking through the word of God, specifically addressing areas in our lives. I'm talking about sin, unbelief, issues in our hearts. Okay, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever gone to church or maybe you're doing your quiet time and it just cuts you, like almost to the point of shocking you? Okay, I'm not gonna disclose information up here in public or online because online's forever. (laughs) But there have been recent moments in my life in the last few months where I was literally shocked by a verse I read because I was struggling with this issue in my life and God just spoke. And it was a little bit of a harsh word and he just spoke it. It's exactly what I need to hear about this particular issue, and I was just shocked by that. It's like, God, you know me, and this is exactly what you're saying today in my quiet time. It just shocked me. Have you heard God in that way? And so, yes, even recently, as I was wrestling with this issue, and it wasn't even just one verse. I actually wrote it down here, but it was a series of verses, three days in a row, back to back to back. Every day when I was reading through the Bible plan, I was opening up the scriptures, and it shocked me. Today, the next day, the third day. And I was like, oh my gosh. It was all on the same issue and God was speaking so clearly. Again, have you heard God in that way? So Jesus speaking loudly through his word. And we, the church, must hear his voice. Okay, we must hear his voice. But that's not all. But here's another way Jesus is working in the church. Through his presence. By being there. So this is what we see in Revelation 113, If you look there. John heard the voice, he wanted to see the voice, so he turned around, and then what did he see? And then I saw in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. And we know that the lampstands are the the seven churches, and right in the middle, so what I imagine, we don't know for sure, but what I imagine are the lampstands in a circle, and right in the middle was Jesus, one like a son of man. So here, the Son of Man is an allusion to Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. There's a lot of imagery of the Old Testament. If you want to understand Revelation, you need to study the Old Testament. It never directly quotes the Old Testament, but there is a lot of imagery coming from the Old Testament. Here's one of them. This is the image of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. If you read Daniel 7, you know that the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And then God the Father, the Ancient of Days, gives the Son of Man... All dominion and authority. So then who is this son of man coming on the clouds of heaven? Jesus told us when he was on trial. He said, I'm that son of man, and you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He said, it's me. And in fact, son of man is the most common way Jesus referred to himself. This is his favorite title for himself. I am the son of man. So Jesus is the son of man. Here John says he's like a son of man. In other words, he looks like a human. And I believe the reason why he said that is because he's more than a human. He looks like a human, but he's more than human. Why? Because John saw him in glorified form. Glorified form. So this is Jesus, the Son of Man, appearing now in his full resurrected glory with all dominion and power. We know that from Daniel 7. This is exactly the same Jesus. And so what am I saying? Who's standing here, brothers and sisters? Who's right here? I'm trying to emphasize the reality. This isn't like something one day. I'm talking about right now. Who is right here? Is this Jesus, the Son of Man. He's right here. I sense him. I don't even have to sense him. I know he's here because the Bible says it, but I also sense him. He's here. It is the same Jesus that used to hold little children, who used to go to the hillside and teach, who used to bring in fish from from the sea, But that Jesus now is standing in the midst of his church, completely transformed. So again, John had a different revelation of Jesus. It changed. So this is the revelation of Jesus. He is standing right here, and as amazing as it sounds, this is the greatest reality of the church. This is true, brothers and sisters. But this is what sets our church and every other true church apart from every other organization throughout the world, is that Jesus is here. We have his presence. So we need to understand this in our minds. Okay, we need to see this revelation as well. We need this revelation. But when we come to church, and if you go to any church, any true church, not just the promise, you might maybe hear some music, maybe it's good, maybe it's not good. You might hear a sermon, maybe it's insightful, maybe it's not insightful. Maybe it's polished, maybe it's not polished. You might meet some people, maybe they're welcoming, maybe they're not welcoming. So those things might not be a given, but you know what is a given? You know what you need to understand when you go to a true church? Is I'm going to encounter the risen Christ. If you go to a true church, Jesus is there. You should have that expectation. I'm going to meet Jesus today. So here's another expectation, brothers, sisters. Don't just come to church to meet some friends, do your Christian thing, but come with an appetite for the word. But here's another thing. Come expecting to meet the risen Christ. You're going to meet Jesus if you're going to a true church. Every time his church gathers, Jesus, the risen Lord, is in the midst. He's here. And so what could encourage you more than that if you're going through something? If the church is feeling weak and compromised, maybe you're feeling weak and compromised. What could be more encouraging than that? But the risen Christ right here, speaking through his word, ministering by his spirit, He reaching out, touching you through other believers. Okay, what could be more encouraging than that? He is here. And this is one of my favorite quotes by A.W. Tozer, but he said, The presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. This is another great man of God. He was a contemporary of Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he was in the U.S., Chicago. But Tozer said, The presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into a conscious awareness of his presence. I love that quote. Okay, that's the central reality of Christianity, God's presence. If you miss that, you miss Christianity. That's what Tozer is saying. And God, every week, every day, when you wake up, he's waiting for his children to push into a conscious awareness of his presence. It okay, takes some effort. God will help you by his grace, but you've got to push into that awareness. Are you aware that God is with you, brothers and sisters? Do, do you know what will keep you from sin more than anything else? And all of us sin. All of us have secret lives. But you know what will keep us from that? Knowing that Jesus is right there. My mom's not there. My roommate's out. But you know who's right next to me? Jesus. And he's so real to me, I just can't do this thing. I just cannot do it. Jesus is right here. And how do I know? Because he just convicted my heart through this verse. How can I dare do this thing? He's right here. That has kept me so many times from sinning. And I'm not perfect. I still fall. But without Jesus' presence, I mean, I would basically be a non-Christian. You wouldn't want to come here. You wouldn't want me to be your pastor. But it's his presence. So his presence is always with us. But see, that's not the issue. Oh, is it here? it here? His presence is always here. But here's the issue. Again, it's the conscious awareness of his presence. That's the issue. Jesus is always with you if you're a believer. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But are you aware of his presence day by day by day? And so it all begins with a simple acknowledgement that, yes, Jesus is here. Why? Because the word of God says it. So it all begins there. Just simply acknowledge it. And then every time you come to church or seek them on your own, be consciously aware of it. Jesus, you're here, and I want to push into your presence today. I want to push into your presence. I want to be with you. And in order to push in, you got to push some things out. I'm going to push out these distractions. I'm going to push away my roommates for a while. I want to push into your presence. And if you do that, he will make himself known to you. Again, John, I believe he was praying. Maybe he was fasting. Well, what else do you do on Patmos? But there he was on this island. He was doing some hard labor, but on his, you know, off time, he was praying and fasting, and Jesus made himself known to him. You know, one of the most amazing experiences of my life is starting this church over 10 years ago, and know, coming out here with just a few people. Didn't know a single person in Riverside. But over the last, like, more than 10 years, one of the most amazing things, aside from just pastoring this church, is experiencing Jesus revealing himself at the most critical times in concrete ways. He's revealing himself to be here with us in this church. And I've shared this before, but I, I, just, I always get amazed. I just have to share it again. But I remember when the church started, on, it started out very early on, I remember I was about to make this really big decision. I didn't really consult a lot of people, didn't even really pray much. But I decided somewhere along the line I'm gonna ask this one guy who's been coming out to become my co-pastor. He didn't know if he was qualified or not. I mean, he was a good guy, but but I just wanted to make him my co-pastor, not associate, but a co-pastor where we're kind of on you know equal and we're gonna take the same load and everything, right? So that would have been a huge change, a fundamental change to our church. And so here I am talking to him. We're getting ready, and days before the decision, literally days before, we're about to make this huge decision. I was at a pastors' meeting and we're talking about something totally unrelated, right? We're talking about church planning or something unrelated. And then this one church came up in the conversation in Colorado, and then they began to say some things about that church, and I was kind of zoning out, and then suddenly I perked up because they said this church decided to have co-pastors. And after that, they started struggling a lot. A lot of problems began to happen. And I kid you not, but one of the pastors there, he ended up being one of my coaches for church planning but he looked straight at me. I don't know why me. I mean, there were like a dozen pastors there, but he looked straight at me, and he says, in all my years of coaching and consulting churches, I've never seen co-pastoring work out. I wouldn't do it. (laughs) He said that looking straight at me. (laughs) I'm days away from getting a co-pastor, and I completely put the brace, completely stopped it, and that guy eventually left. He was a good guy. But there was a fundamental shift. Why? And again, I'm not saying being a, you know, having co-pastors is wrong every time. That's not my point. The point is, what was that? Okay, what, what did I experience? Jesus showing up. Jesus revealing himself at the most critical moment saying, this is my church. Roy, you don't know what you're doing. I'm putting the brakes. Amen? That was Jesus showing up. Out of all those passages there, he looked straight at me going, I wouldn't do it. I've never seen it work out. It was almost like he, he changed the tone talking to me. He, in the beginning, he was kind of talking to the whole room, and then he was just talking to me. I wouldn't do it. He had no idea. This is Jesus showing up, brothers and sisters, and I've seen this happen more than once, whether it's finances suddenly showing up out of nowhere to meet a specific need of the church, out of nowhere. Okay? Gigantic checks out of nowhere. Specific answers to prayer for a specific leader, and then they show up. Like I've just seen this again and again. Jesus reveals himself. And what revelation is it? He's right here. He's in the midst, brothers and sisters. So even right now, again, I, I said it earlier, I'm going to say it again. Jesus is right here. I sense him, but I don't have to sense him. I know it. I know it from the word of God. He's right here. The risen Lord is right here. And so this is the revelation John received, that Jesus is standing in the midst of his churches. And why is his presence so important? Okay, why is it so critical? Well, it's because his presence brings fellowship. The whole point of our salvation is that we would be with him forever and ever, that we will glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do you do that without his presence? You need his presence. His presence brings guidance. I just mentioned an example of that. His presence brings strength. His presence brings comfort and reassurance. You know, many of you guys are in the medical field, but I heard that more and more end-of-life hospice care is being taken from facilities and moved into people's homes, the patient's home. Maybe that's just true all the time now, but I heard that change is happening. And it's very understandable because what could be more strengthening and reassuring for a person who's dying than the presence of their loved ones? See, it's presence, right? Presence. And what could be more reassuring to a struggling, dying church than the presence of Christ? See, this is why John was given this revelation. John, tell the churches. Remember all those churches? They're weak. They're compromised. They're struggling. They're being persecuted. Tell them the revelation. I am in the midst. And so there are many things that Jesus' presence brings to the church. He is always at work. Along with this presence comes many things, and this brings us to our third point Jesus' work for the church. So look at verses 13 through 16. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished, like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the whirl of many waters, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So this is John's first vision of the risen Christ glorified, he came mighty in power, majesty. This is his first vision in this book. And each of those descriptions of Jesus, so we learn what he's wearing, we learn what he looks like. But each of those descriptions represent a ministry that Jesus is doing to the church. You know, before I would just read that going, oh, wow, Jesus looks weird. He's cool, you know, <laughs> he looks cool. But, but the Bible, everything that it points out about Jesus is somehow connected to the church. They're inseparable. you got to understand that. Everything about Jesus' appearance and his clothing is connected to the church. And so each of these descriptions could be an entire sermon, but we don't have time. I just saw my clock is almost 12. We end at 12. (laughs) Okay, so we're running out of time. We have like two minutes. Let me try to do this in two minutes. But each of these descriptions represent a ministry that Jesus has to the church. So first, a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That is a picture of what the priests wore in the Old Testament. So Jesus is wearing a priestly robe here. And what does that mean to the church? Well, Jesus is the priest over his church. And a priest represented God to the people and represented the people to God. That is what the priest did. And so when you look at Jesus' ministry to the church, that's exactly what he does. He does both. He did both on the cross. He represented us to God by taking our place. And then he represented God to us by being truly God dying for us. He showed us who God is. And so he did that on the cross. But now he's still doing it. He's still doing it right now. Okay, How? Well, he's relating to us in our weakness. He's praying for us. Okay, day by day, he is redeeming us. Hebrews 2, 17, 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, talking about Jesus, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So do you see that? Jesus, he's not just standing around. Oh, I'm here, I'm in the church. But there are things that he's doing, and one of the things he's doing is he has the priestly robe on. He is a priest. He is ministering. So do you want to be ministered? you got to come to church and expect Jesus to encounter you. He's going to minister to you as the priest. He knows your weakness. He knows your struggles. He knows the way you condemn yourself and beat yourself up. He knows all the ways that you hide and you're not honest about your failings before others. He knows all of that, and he has compassion. Why? Because he's our high priest. And he represents us to God, and he represents God to us. He's our high priest. So that's the first thing. The next thing we see is that he has hair on his head that is white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. So here we're getting a description of what Jesus begins to look like. And this is revealing Jesus' wisdom and watchfulness over the church. And again, this is an allusion to Daniel 7 of the Ancient of Days. This is God Almighty sitting on the throne with hair as white as wool and eyes blazing like fire, and this is Jesus. Again, it's the same thing as before. The two pictures become one. Is Jesus. This is Jesus. And so Jesus now is this God Almighty in the Old Testament and his wisdom and his watchfulness over the church. And so I mentioned earlier how Jesus reveals himself to the church. How? Through guiding us, his wisdom. Going back to that story again, I mean, gosh, I had no idea what was up ahead if I made this decision. And yet Jesus' wisdom, his great sovereign wisdom, stopped it. Why? Because he knew he's wise. But not only that, but he saw, right? He's watchful. I know for a lot of us, we don't like that. It's like, oh, God sees me. And the reason why we, we don't like that is because we see our sin as something fun, maybe something that I want to hold on to. It gives me, you know, freedom to do certain things. But the more you understand what that sin really does in our lives, we, we welcome his watchfulness. You know, I remember back when our kids were really little, we wanted to only send them to preschools that had a camera. And the reason why is because we wanted to watch them, right? While I'm in the office, while my wife is at work, we just wanted to log onto our phone and watch our kids. And later when we told our kids, there were about maybe two or three, they liked it. They're like, oh, you're watching me? <laughs> they really liked it. And so when our children are innocent and young, they welcome that. That's the way we should be. We should welcome his watchfulness. But that's what this shows us here. He had eyes like flaming fire. His hair was white as wool. But not only that, but we see that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And here I believe it's showing us the discipline of Christ. The way he disciplines the church. And why do I say that? Well, the reason why is because feet in ancient times, especially the feet of the king, were always signs of judgment. See, if you are called into the king's throne room and you did something bad, he would be up on his throne and you would kneel before his throne. Why? Because the feet of the king were always above you, representing judgment. His authority to judge you. That's what those feet represented. They were above you. That's why they always kneeled before the throne. And so here, Jesus' feet represented the same authority and his judgment over sin in the church. This isn't towards the world. That's later. This is in the church. But it's not just feet, but it says the feet are bronze, burnished bronze, glowing, because they've been heated up. Have you ever seen metal heated up? It's glowing. And so what does that represent? That represents absolute authority to stomp out sin, to judge sin in the church. It's not like human authority. This is absolute authority. And so this is Jesus' ministry in the church. He will stomp out sin. And I see this with a lot of fear and trembling, but ever since COVID hit, I feel like there's been a lot of shaking of the church. Don't you feel that way? But ever since COVID hit two years ago, I feel like there's been a lot of things exposed within the churches. Sin, you know, pastors committing adultery, churches, You know, going the wrong way, having false doctrine. I mean, all kinds of stuff is being revealed. And again, I say that with fear because we might not be exempt. But what I believe Jesus is doing is that's exactly it. He is bringing judgment upon his church. See, this is his ministry. This is his ministry. But let's move on. Okay, we've got to wrap it up. Revelation 1, 14 through 16. Here's something else. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And so here you see Jesus' protection over the church. And that's symbolized by the sword coming out of his mouth. It's very interesting, but in Roman times, the Roman sword looked like a tongue. So maybe it's kind of an illusion there. But if you look at a Roman sword, it kind of looks like a tongue. But this is Jesus' sword coming out of his mouth. And what does that symbolize? His protection. How do we know that? Look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. I don't think it'll be up there. But it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he talks about how a few of you have stood against the Nicolaitans who have false teaching. And Balak, the sons of Balaam, who are these people? I don't know. But they're false teachers. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming against all the false teachers within the church, and I'm going to protect you. How? With a sword coming out of my mouth. Okay, do you see that imagery there? So this is saying Jesus' protection is here. So Jesus, he's protecting the church. Okay, if you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, and I don't put that past anybody, but if you're truly a wolf, okay, you're not here to grow closer to Christ and worship him, but you're here for other things, and you're spreading false things, Jesus will come towards you, the sword of his mouth, amen? And it's to protect the church and hopefully bring you back. But this is his ministry. And then, of course, his face shining like the sun in full strength is the glory that he has over the church. So Jesus not only is working, but he will shine his glory upon the church. Why? So that all the world may know who we worship and be drawn to that. There is a glory inherent in the church. Again, don't look at size, don't look at building, don't look at those things. But look at what is true, what is real. Again, imitation stuff is bad, gucho belts. <laughs> you don't want that. You want the real thing. This is the real thing. His glory will shine throughout the church, drawing people to himself. So this is the ministry of Jesus towards his church. Amen. So he's here, brothers and sisters. Again, this is not something way out there, something one day. It's right now. And then we're going to close with this, but Jesus ends with the description of the church, description of the church. But it says, John said in verse 17, when I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys are another symbol of authority, access, authority, Right there, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. Please pay attention. This is the last thing. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Jesus is talking, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angel there is literally just messenger, messenger. So there are different ways to interpret that. It could be literal angels, like angelic beings. Or it could be just kind of the spirit of the church, like the essence of the church. Or it could literally be the pastors that are giving the messages to the church. It could be the pastors over those churches. I don't have an opinion on that. I'm thinking more as literal angels or maybe the pastors. But the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so here Jesus is saying, this is the way I see my church. And so he's giving us a description of the church. And so what does he call the church? He calls it a golden lampstand. A golden lampstand had inherent value and beauty to it. People would actually often even maybe sell these, trade these. But not only that, but there was a purpose, right? There was inherent beauty, but there was a purpose to it. It shines and gives light. Nobody would get a golden lampstand filled with oil, with a wick, And then put it on the ground. You lift it up. And so this is what Jesus is saying. And we're going to look much more at this in the weeks ahead. But this is his view of the church. It's meant to shine, right? Shine the truth. Shine my glory that is in the church. Shine it to the world. And so we're coming to a close, but I wanted to share with this story. But recently, because of the shooting, I've been looking at a lot of the things that the culture is saying about these mass shootings, especially the one in Texas. But how is the culture interpreting these mass shootings? How are they dealing with it? And so I've seen clear differences in the way people are approaching it. But on social media, you see people trying to make sense of the shooter and the shooting. Why did this happen? And so you might have heard this, but some people just write it off as, that guy is a demon, and they straight call him a demon. It was demonic, he's a demon, and there's no answer. He's just an evil person. Some people are just evil like that. Other people, they say, no, he's not evil. He wasn't loved. He was bullied. There were things happening in his life. He didn't have a a good family life. Other people, they talk about gun control. Okay, Forget about the guy. Maybe it's the laws and the policies. And other people, they talk about mental health. We don't have enough resources. So so you you see different people trying to answer it in different ways. And I'm open to that. I mean, some of those things can help. But as believers, I think we can confidently say, but we have a better answer. Amen? We have a truer answer. See, this is the lampstand that's shiny. But we have a truer answer. Do you know that the Bible and the gospel is always more nuanced than the, than the culture? I've said this before. But always. The culture tends to see the Bible as very simplistic, is a myth, is fictional writing. I mean, it's for kids, right? Noah's Ark. And yet when you really understand what the scriptures are saying, when you hear the voice of Jesus, it's always more nuanced, more accurate, more true than what the culture is saying. So for example, the Bible never calls human beings demons. Never. No human being is a demon. Why? Because human beings are created in the image of God. We can reflect God's glory, his attributes. And yet, the Bible says, but we're not just in the image of God. We're shattered. We're ruined. I love the phrase, ruined palaces. We're like glorious palaces that have been ruined. Graffiti everywhere. Windows are broken. That's the Bible's view of mankind. Isn't that more accurate? than Oh, he just wasn't loved. Oh, he's a demon. Write him off. The Bible's always more nuanced so what am I saying? Ultimately, who has the answer, brothers and sisters? We do. We do. We have the answers. And so this is what John saw, the revelation of not only Jesus, but then Jesus saying, this is my church, the golden lamp stands. Amen? Okay, let's come before the Lord in prayer, and we're going to wrap it up. But this is who we are. And starting next week, we're going to look directly at Jesus' letters to the church. Jesus had a lot to say about the church. So Lord God, we just worship you, Lord, and we we love you, Father. And Lord Jesus, I do want to affirm again that you are right here in the midst. You are with us. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that not a single person here would miss you. That they would not miss you, Father. That they wouldn't come here for any lesser reason than to be in your presence and to hear your voice, to encounter the risen Christ. To come here for any lesser reason would be like going to, like, a five-star Michelin buffet, the best food you can imagine, and then just eating the fish crackers and going home. Lord, let us not be like that. We want the full meal. We don't want the imitation. We want the real thing. So, Lord God, thank you so much. Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, I honor you and I glorify you. You are the head of this church. Your voice, not my voice, your voice in scripture thunders through the hearts of your people, Lord. Please speak to them. Long after this service is over, speak. Shock them. Lord, sometimes I think we need to be shocked from time to time. Shocked out of sleep. Shocked out of apathy, slumber. Oh my gosh. God knew that? God's real? God heard that prayer. Please, Lord God, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand worship.